When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. In his new book, Inkface, Othello and White Authority in the Era of Atlantic Slavery, Miles P. Greer argues that Blackness and Othello and the text that it influenced should be understood as deeply material, transferable, and unstable. The defining of alphanumerical and dramatic characters, while represented as settled, was anything but. As Miles puts it in the book, quote, before the racial categories of high scientific racism were elaborated in the late 18th century, a functional white interpretive community was being forged through the shared exercise of interpretive authority over inky black figures. The stage, Miles writes, offered a place in which control over symbols and their interpretation could be celebrated as if it were already a fate accompli rather than a tense ongoing battle, end quote. Miles Parks Greer is professor of English at Queens College, City University of New York. Miles' articles have appeared in the William and Mary Quarterly, the Journal of Popular Music Studies, Shakespeare Quarterly, and Shakespeare Text, Contemporary Readings and Textual Studies, Editing and Performance. Along with Cassandra L. Smith and Nicholas Jones, Miles co-edited Early Modern Black Diaspora Studies, a critical anthology from Paul Grave in 2018. Inkface is his first monograph. Welcome to the podcast, Miles. Thank you. Can you give us a brief capsule summary of Inkface, Othello, and White Authority in the era of Atlantic slavery? Yes. Um, so it's a book that really takes seriously the material bases of the metaphors of staining and imprinting in Othello. Uh, and the real impetus behind it um, was what I felt was a sort of attempt to clean up Othello um, that really culminates with the um, recent performances of Verdi's Othello at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, where they now, you know, unofficially banned uh, the tenors from blacking up. And I thought, what exactly is being hidden here um, by removing this sort of last vestige of these performance conditions um, in which Othello would have originally uh, been performed? And that took me uh, not only to Othello's final line, uh, I I kissed the air, I killed the no way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss, 
um, and the pun on die there, which can really only be done with a blackface character, um, but also his reference to Desdemona as fair paper, uh, which would suggest that he is ink. So after that kind of rereading of 17th century um, Othello's, I then wanted to test the kind of truism and scholarship that race is so different in the Americas and so different um, in modernity. And I thought, well, let's look at some cases of Othello uh, from the 1680s when Afrobin writes her Orinoco and, uh, up through Herman Melville's Benito Serino in 1855 and see if there are cases in which audiences were paying attention to these props, these page props, and also paying attention to the transfer of the makeup from Othello to Desdemona. Um, and in the cases that I find, uh, in fact, they are. So the typical arguments about, you know, what is the proper designation of Moor? You know, is it a North African or a Sub-Saharan African? You know, um, to what extent is the Atlantic world relevant? Um, all those sort of fall away, uh, at least for these audience members. You know, I'm not claiming in any way that this is the only way that people received Othello over these uh, 250 years that I'm looking at. Uh, but I am arguing that the narrative frames that we had before uh, couldn't account for these stories, and they're also part of the history of Othello and the history of racial thinking. So that's the project. I think you've uh, seeded some wonderful things that I hope to return to, including the um, fresh chronology that you're es establishing, um, as well as um, these wonderful interventions, I think, into um, stage technology, into uh, close reading the text, returning to Othello. Um, but first, I want to talk about uh, the development of the project. Sure. Um, I, I believe Inkface uh, started as a dissertation. Yes. Um, what was the project like, um, bringing it from prospectus to dissertation to book? And uh, what kinds of changes did you make to the mm -hmm. material or the argument, particularly from dissertation to book? Is there any um, particular advice you would give to people who are um, writing dissertations, revising them, or sure. advising PhD students? Well, the nice thing about having tenure is that one can tell a bit of truth, finally. Um, the process for me was probably a lot more painful than it needed to be. Um, and I got some good advice from a friend of mine, uh, Professor Chenoweth Thelwell at the College of William and Mary. He actually sent his dissertation out to um, prospective publishers fairly soon after he defended his dissertation so as to get reader reports that would suggest what needed to be done. Um, I didn't do that because I was um, advised that that was risky and that um, it would potentially um, eliminate potential sites where I could, could publish. Um, but because of that, I sort of wandered around for a really long time uh, with people telling me it's not ready yet, um, not having read it, right? <laughs> so I was like, well, then what would make it ready? Like, would you read it and tell me what, what needs to, no, I'm just warning you, don't send it before it's ready. It's like, you know, so it was very disorienting uh, for me. Um, the other suggestion that I've seen is from the editor of the William & Mary Quarterly, uh, Joshua Piker who has actually suggested sending out chapters, you know, sending each chapter to a journal and getting feedback that way. 
Um, and I think I would have, I would now have done either of those two things in order to, to, to get a better sense um, of what needed to be done to the dissertation to, um, to convert it. So, um, you know, I think my primary advice to any graduate student um, or, or recent PhD um, would be to take one of those two methods, whichever one they feel is the safest, um, and to take it, um, because otherwise it, it's just a bit of wandering in the desert. Um, what happened that sort of saved me uh, was that three members of my field, uh, Patricia Akimi, Mario Deganji, and Will Fisher, uh, cornered me at a conference and said, we are forming a reading group for your book manuscript. And I said, oh, we'll exchange writing and I'll read some of yours and you'll read some of mine. And they said, no, we are, this is an intervention. We are, <laughs> we want you to remain our colleague. So um, we will do uh, this amazing service for you. Uh, and they did, and it's a tremendous gift. Um, but even then, um, I still felt a bit lost uh, because the, the question of, of selection, you know, of, of what can go in this project and what should be part of another project uh, was very hard to answer. And sometimes I'd say to Will, this chapter is already too long, but I feel like this other piece needs to be in there. And he'd say, yeah, I could see why you'd think that. <laughs> I'm like, well, at what point does it end, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think because the project is uh, somewhat imaginative, by, by which I mean, you know, it's not a period that is recognized, right? You know, uh, I took the period out of the title, but it would have been 1604 to 1855. That doesn't correspond to any kind of period <laughs> designation that we've got. Uh, you know, it's transatlantic. Um, it's about epistemology, but also about, you know, material texts and also about performance, you know, so it's sort of straddling a lot of different areas and trying to bring them into conversation. And that made it more difficult to get a handle on. Um, so for anyone who has a project like that, I guess what I will say is um, have great friends, which I did. <laughs> um, and eventually, um, eventually there does come a time, I, yeah, I don't know how to, <laughs> you know, when Hamlet says, let be, you know, I just sort of said, okay, you know, this, I'm out of time <laughs> and, and this is what the project needs to be. And wait a minute, actually, I think I kind of like it this way. Uh, so, I mean, I wish John that I could be more precise. Um, the project is probably 80% different from what the dissertation was. Um, it's, it's significantly rewritten, um, but I can't say that it was that systematic uh, as I went along. Um, and, you know, some great spirit allowed it to have coherence <laughs> and kind of allowed me to step back and go, actually, there is a way that this all works together, even though I didn't have it in mind the, you know, the, the, uh, the whole time. Yeah, I could see how it, it could be a challenge. Uh, the the book is so beautifully written and persuasively argued, but I could see how um, the way we structure journals, for instance, you know, um, how many readers are going to, uh, you know, be able to engage with Melville and with Othello, you know, yes. that's something that you're doing in a later chapter. 
Um, I, I think this really wonderfully leads into the next question, which is uh, in an interview with uh, Lords Taylor, you talk, uh, or you describe yourself as a disciple of Hortense Spillers, in particular in the way that a Black Studies approach necessarily requires a rethinking of disciplinary and field distinctions. Like, what does early modernity mean in the context of someone like Phyllis Wheatley, who was excluded from participating in the early U.S. Republic? In this book, you talk about nation and period as mutually reinforcing concepts. How does Inkface challenge or rethink the distinctions we have uh, inherited and institutionalized? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I started this project in the early 2000s, um, when I started conceiving it, I was actually still teaching high school. and. Uh, you know, one would, it was still very common to hear then that there's no race in the Renaissance. Um, it was a bit surprising to me because by that point I'd read, you know, Anthony Bartholomew's Blackface Maligned Race and Kim Hall's Things of Darkness. Um, and so I was pretty convinced that there was, <laughs> but it was, you know, fairly common, um, you know, in journal articles and in monographs to read these kinds of um, rejections of that as an, of race as an analytic tool. Um, and I started to realize that that was really about both period and nation. Um, and what I was very surprised to find out was that in some ways, early Americanists were also complicit because there was this sense that, um, like in an early Americanist kind of point of view, um, say the Virginia slave codes or the Barbados slave codes or the Code Noir, you know, all of these are thought of as creating the category of race, um, basically out of nothing, right, to um, justify uh, the seizure of land and the um, seizure of captive African bodies. Um, and there's this sense in which, well, Europe is sort of innocent of all this. Um, so there's both a spatial and a temporal um, kind of disconnect. And so I think that what this project uh, allowed me to do, you know, uh, say in the chapter on Abigail Adams is to follow some people um, who are crossing geographic uh, distances. Uh, so Abigail Adams sees Othello in London. And so we're pulling her out of the kind of early American context in which she'd been read and interpreted and, you know, making her think about race while being uh, a tourist and a diplomat um, in a kind of rejecting metropole. So um, that really, you know, the Hortense Spillers element of it, she has this amazing statement that she makes in the intro to um, her collection of essays, uh, Black, White, and in Color. And in that intro, she says, that the point of black studies is not just to put the adjective black before uh, some other kind of um, methodology, you know, black post-structuralism or black you know, anthropology or black whatever, but to go into that formation um, and find out why in order to consolidate itself, it had to exclude black from its thought processes. So for me in Inkface, it's not, um, black in terms of people of African descent. It's the blackness of Othello's makeup has sort of been wished away. Oh, we didn't mean it. You know? uh, 
he's just a moor. That's always meant to be Tawny. Shakespeare just made a mistake. You can totally perform Othello without the dark makeup. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, and so for me, in that sort of, it's 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 a gesture that's in the spirit of Hortense Spillers, you know, to sort of say, well, this, there's something messy and gummy and sticky uh, that if we bring it back into the discourse, um, it really potentially changes everything. So um, I didn't get to Phyllis Wheatley in that, but, <laughs> but, I, but I covered, you know, most of what you asked. <laughs> Um, and I think we're already seeing this in, in some of your answers, but um, threaded throughout the book are these fresh, wonderfully insightful readings of scenes in Othello, usually through a kind of performance-based question. Uh, then you leverage this framework um, to, to get at the character economy, um, to enrich and expand our understanding of that question. Let's begin with, with one of those first questions. Um, since Othello seems to be disarmed uh, of any weapons, how does he uh, kill himself in that final scene? Yes. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit with that question, John, because I have gotten a bit, I've gotten a range of reactions uh, mm -hmm. to this uh, hypothesis of mine. Um, but if we return to that final scene, uh, he rushes at Iago with uh, a sword and he stabs Iago and then uh, the guards disarm him. Uh, but somehow uh, he stabs himself and Cassio makes the point of having feared this outcome, but thinking that Othello had no weapon. And so, you know, the play is drawing our attention to the fact that there should be no possibility for a fellow to do this. And I started to think about some of those overlooked elements. And in this case, the page prop, um, the action stops for this uh, removal, or excuse me, retrieval um, of uh, pages, papers from the dead Rodrigo's pockets and he's uh, Iago's uh, co-conspirator. And there are three different papers that are removed from this guy's pockets. And I'm thinking, that's a lot. You'd think one confession, one written confession would be enough. So why are we pausing over this? And they also remark about the blood on those pages. And I started to think about the fact that after Othello stabs himself, Lodovico, one of the ambassadors from Venice, yells out, oh, bloody period. And I thought, well, what if this is actually paired with the blood on the letters from Rodrigo's pockets? And if so, there's this implication that Othello, as a Black Moor, bleeds punctuation. And then I thought, well, he has just dictated this missive. This is what I want as my final report to the Venetian state about this military expedition that I've been sent on. And I thought, well, what could he stab himself with then that would be too small for anyone on stage to detect? Um, and that would also serve this kind of um, writerly function of placing the period at the end of his suicide note. And I thought, it's a quill. He stabs himself with a quill. It has to be a quill. Um, and I've definitely gotten some people saying, but that would be silly. That would be a joke. You know, like it's a goose feather. How could it, <laughs> you know, why that's not befitting a great tragedy. And I, I have sort of two, uh, two hedges on that. And one, uh, was actually John Archer's suggestion. Well, in the Spanish tragedy, there is someone who kills themselves with a penknife. So what if it's a penknife rather than a quill? Okay. Um, the other hedge is really coming from Bob Hornback, who says, 
you know, we don't think enough anymore about the kind of dark humor of Othello. And so why are we so sure that there isn't meant to be laughter? Um, I'm not certain about that myself. Uh, I certainly know that some Black actors who played the role recently uh, have said in interviews that it's so frustrating that Othello gets laughed at. And it's sort of like, well, he's the dupe. In the same way that Malvolio is going to get laughed at in Twelfth Night, I mean, the dupe is going to be laughed at. So why are we assuming, you know, that it's never proper to laugh during Othello? Um, so those are sort of my, I mean, I guess the only other little fun one is that in one Roman history of Caesar, one of his assailants stabs him with a stylus. So that's the other, you know, that's the other uh, out I have that's sharp enough to be, you know, um, a writing instrument, uh, but not not a silly goose feather. I, I find it extremely persuasive um, myself. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've um, got one, <laughs> and it unlocks yeah this wonderful discussion about that like constellation of metaphors, you know, in that in that scene. Um, another question you turn to, um, and, and this is another um, kind of serio-comic, maybe, yes. dimension, um, which is Desdemona's dead-alive scene. Um, she seems to be killed by Othello, but then she jumps alive and yes. gives, <laughs> gives a long speech. And, and I've, I've taught the play in class and, you know, trying to explain or work through like just the the um, practical um, performance element of the scene is really difficult, um, but you use that that problem um, as a springboard for all kinds of interesting questions about how we read Desdemona, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, this is one of the things I love about the theater archive. Um, so I was at the British Library looking for information around the performance that Abigail Adams saw in 1785. And I just happened to see um, a newspaper article <clears throat> about an actress, a Miss Woolery, we don't even know her first name, uh, who after she's supposed to be dead the second time, right, um, bolts up in bed because someone in the theater yelled fire. And someone in the audience goes, this isn't a tragedy. This is the farce of dead alive. And apparently got a big laugh. And I started to wonder, it, what if it isn't his response to her bolting up in bed, but his response to the fact that this is, this is like the third revival. Um, and what if we take seriously um, the, the fact that, yeah, she does seem to pop up like a jack in the box a few times. <laughs> um, and Othello is certain that her voice um, I guess the ba the best way to put it would be she's able to speak after death, you know. So when she's screaming, "My Lord, My Lord, My Lord," Amelia's outside the door screaming, "Lord, Lord, My Lord, let me in," and Othello can't tell where the voice is coming from. So that's the first um, time that Desdemona's voice seems to be coming from a source that isn't her body. Um, and then the the second one um, is when she allegedly revives. Um, and there was actually a whole controversy in the 18th century newspapers about that because John Kemble decides, well, if she were smothered, she even if she revived, she wouldn't be able to speak. So he, he, in, he innovates this idea that, well, I'll stab her. That way, when she comes back, she hasn't had any injury to her throat and she'll still be able to speak. And then, you know, the theater um, uh, 
culture responded, um, but he says, I won't stab her or shed her blood. So you can't do that. You know, so this really did become this kind of problem in the 18th century. Um, and for me, the solution was in really thinking about Desdemona's voice um, as increasingly coming from a source other than her own throat uh, over the course of the play. Um, and that one of the mechanisms for that happening is that she's being imprinted by a fellow's kisses starting in act two. <clears throat> and we all know, um, we use this, this phrase, um, what does the paper say? We act as if paper can speak. And if she's being called fair paper and she's being you know, increasingly covered with this ink from Othello, um, then she does have a voice, but it's alien to her. It's not emanating from her own um, agency. So that seemed pretty interesting to me. And I think the coolest part is uh, for me, uh, finding out that I'm not this crazy person with these wild theories, but that actually there are people in the history of this play that we haven't listened to who also got snagged on some of the oddities of this play and some of the kind of inconsistencies that we've smoothed out because they best befit one of the four great tragedies and our idea of what a Shakespearean tragedy, you know, should be. That's, that's wonderful. Um, and, and um, it, it unlocks so much about um, the structure and, and flow of the play, just sort of thinking through moments like that. How, how do you actually stage it? Um, which I think, you know, as, as, someone who is more engaging with it on the page, you know, mm -hmm. um, is, is a little bit um, less intuitive for me. Mm -hmm. Well, if I can quickly say that's the, you know, Tiffany Stern and, and Simon Palfrey have this great book about Shakespeare in parts. Um, <clears throat> and it really taught me how to think about dialogue as overlapping um, and in a way that you don't see it when you pick up any of the wonderful editions that we have, be it Folger, Arden, whatever, just the way things look on the page, it looks as if people are taking turns and speaking sequentially. But if you start thinking about theater and cues, if a person has a repeated line, the other actor is thinking that they've heard their cue, but they haven't because <laughs> the person's going to say it five more times. And so now you're getting crosstalk, you know, and other things that that don't suit our sense of the precious Shakespeare where you must hear every beautiful syllable. Sort of like, no, actually, he's sort of like, yeah, that's going to be a throwaway moment or that's going to be a noise moment. And how is that theatrical instead of the great soliloquy that must be heard in, you know, in its entirety? You know, that's a kind of cool thing to find out. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, both, both questioning the stateliness of it and also thinking about... <laughs> how how performance um puts pressure or doesn't put pressure on the the individual word or phrase you know and mm. yeah um i i learned a lot from your interpretation of orinoco in particular you ask us to reflect on the materiality of afrobin's uh proto novel prose narrative um within the context of ben's uh debts to the othello story you have this wonderful passage in which you memorably describe Ben as a diva whose Orinoco is like, quote, an answer song from an R&B girl group, um, end quote, speaking back to the Shakespearean source of inspiration. How does Orinoco take up and riff on the Moorish stories that were so popular throughout the 17th century? You know, that was a, a fun chapter to write for exactly that reason. Um, I had been raised on scholarship that I admire greatly. I want to <laughs> note that. 
um, that really thinks of Orinoco as this sort of um, emblem of bad white feminism, because uh, according to that um, mode of reading, um, Ben has a kind of rivalry with um, Emma Wenda, the African heroine, um, and she um, basically does her dirty, you know, does, <laughs> doesn't um, uh, back her um, and, and, you know, really betrays her to the colonial authorities during the slave revolt in Suriname and all this other thing. And I thought, I actually, I reread the dedication where Ben says, um, you'll have to forgive me if Orinoco doesn't cohere. It has these faults of connection and I'm sorry, but I didn't rest my pen a moment for thought, she says. I thought now Alfred Ben is a very skilled writer. There's no way, you know. So what if this is sort of shade about the faults of connection? I mean, we've talked about this for, for decades, you know, in Othello, the double time scene, like how is it that, a fellow thinks that Cassio and Desdemona could have slept together. When could it have happened? You know, there isn't enough time and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, what if the incongruities and improbabilities of the fellow were actually very apparent to her? Um, and she says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write an imitation of this, but I'm going to attempt to save the heroine um, in the sense that our, not save her, but allow her to be victorious in a genre in which she must die. I had to rephrase that because one of my students this semester said, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't see it. She dies. I said, well, it's a tragedy. So she has to die. But the difference is that Emma Wenda, having already been Black all along, can't ever be stained by Orinoca, um, is one way in which she's victorious. Um, she calls for her own death unlike Desdemona, um, and the, she's tattooed, here's our ink face moment, she's tattooed with flowers, and I thought, oh my God, you know, she can't be deflowered because she's permanently marked with flowers, and that's why she's the only, um, you know, uh, well, that's why she's this unique Black female figure in the Atlantic slave trade who can't be violated sexually you know and ben has these little passages where these white men <clears throat> approach her and they're so sure that they're going to take her and they don't know why but they wilt <laughs> they just can't go through with it and i'm thinking well what could it be and i thought oh my god it's the flower you know so i think if we accept that ben is taking all of the um materials metaphors and the mode the, the tragic mode of Othello, but still trying to, you know, um, wrestle some kind of female agency out of that, um, then Orinoco looks quite different. Um, and I'm not doing this to try to redeem Afra Ben and say she was, you know, a great friend to the Negro or anything like that. You know, it's not that. Um, it's just because I, I'll say very quickly, I'm not trying to redeem anyone in this project. Um, but um, I, I think it's worth trying to get a little bit of distance on our own critical approaches uh, as well as, you know, it's easy to have just distance from the author and to judge the author. It's harder to have distance from our own critical tools. Abigail Adams, the wife of the second U.S. president and a prolific writer in her own right, returned to the figure of Desdemona 
Um, as you point out, her own whiteness as a woman was not entirely obvious and unassailable when she visited England. Um, there's a, 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 a um, etching that's yeah. reproduced in the book that's uh, really fascinating. Um, through her, through Abigail Adams' commentary on Desdemona and the actress Sarah Kimball Siddons, you chart a, a long-running exploration in Adams' writing on the challenge of uh, a woman to be a public character without getting marked or stained by public circulation. Why was Siddons' uh, Desdemona such a fascinating figure for Adams, and how does this transatlantic history uh, inform the character economy we've been uh, talking about? I feel a little bit like a broken record, but maybe it's just because I enjoyed writing. I really did enjoy. I mean, I know I said earlier that it was painful, but, <laughs> but I but I learned a lot <laughs> along the way. Um, the thing about Adams uh, is that this moment of her at Othello in London in 1785 um, has typically been read as this kind of referendum on is Abigail Adams racist or not? Because here she is watching this play about miscegenation, like, and we're sure that it's about miscegenation. And so therefore that must be the thing that she's responding to. So, you know, we've had kind of law and literature people say, well, Massachusetts passed a law banning interracial fornication that year. So she must be reflecting on like, women couldn't vote in Massachusetts, right? <laughs> and also she's not in Massachusetts, you know? So is there a way to return to her letters and, and get more of a sense of what she was looking at? Um, and the thing that came up over and over in her letters is, I got to see Sarah Siddons. <laughs> she and her daughter, um, her sister back in Massachusetts, her niece, you know, they're all talking about Sarah Siddons, who's sort of the Meryl Streep of her day. And so for Adams, the, the other thing is there's no public theater in Massachusetts. Um, you know, it's sort of a Puritan ban on theater as this place of vice. So during this time uh, that she's in Europe, she gets to experience something that she wouldn't have um, at home uh, and something that kind of puts her in a certain kind of jeopardy because she is a very devout woman and she's in this den of iniquity, <laughs> right? Um, and so what became interesting to me was how does she manage um, being abroad being the wife of a diplomat, being in a box seat where she's very visible um, and not liking that kind of public visibility, but still wanting to be at the theater. So how does she manage that? And what I came up with is that Sarah Siddons becomes this sort of emblem, um, a kind of rare one of a woman who's able to travel and be in the public eye and yet maintain this spotless reputation. Uh, and it turned out that part of how students did that um, was in the roles that she took uh, and then also um, in the way that she included her children as part of her kind of star persona. And so I argue that afterwards, you know, Adam sort of learned that. And so when she has her audience with the queen, she brings her daughter with her and they're all dressed in white. And, you know, and it's sort of like she's learned how to manage um, this thing that um, Siddons normally could do well, but what makes the Desdemona case sort of interesting is that she doesn't manage to get through Othello unspotted because Othello's marks are on her. And Adams actually notices that and says, 
you know, I shuddered every time the sooty Desdemona, or I'm sorry, the sooty Othello touched the gentle Desdemona, you know. So rather than it, rather than it being that Adams is responding to miscegenation in general, you know, I wanted to think about how she responded to what actually happens on stage and sort of her react, re, her responses to the Black people in her life as not really being connected to how she would respond to Othello because they're just different, right? <laughs> you know? So there is a recent biographer who's like, I can't believe that she hated Othello, you know? Um, she was so nice to the actual Black people in her life. And I'm like, well, yeah, but <laughs> you know, this is, these are not equivalent. In his final speech, Othello describes himself as, quote, of one whose hand, like the base Indian, threw away a pearl richer than all his tribe, end quote. In your work, you examine how Amerindian forms of spectatorship were troped as gullible or easily susceptible or, or not able to recognize value. Um, race thinking had implications on how value was understood in a market itself that was uh, ultimately unstable. Talk to us about this incident in November 1752, uh, in which a group of English and Cherokee spectators watched Othello or maybe more accurately watched each other watching Othello. <laughs> yes. Well, this was also fun after the Adams chapter because she is in this place of visibility. And um, what I discovered was that um, there was a tradition in Britain of bringing indigenous American uh, diplomats to this kind of command performance at the theater when they were there for treaty negotiations. Um, and they would be placed very prominently um, and the newspapers in Britain would report on how they responded uh, to these Shakespeare plays. Um, and actually in 1730, uh, Cherokees had, had seen some theater in England and some of those diplomats were the same ones who were in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1752. Um, and that bit of background uh, about how typical this was, at least in metropolitan London, um, helped me reinterpret this Williamsburg incident, which has sort of gone down in US theater history as the gullible Indian moment, because the uh, uh, high ranking Cherokee woman uh, interrupts the play during a sword fight and sends some of her guards to stop the action. And the Virginia Gazette, which reported this incident, uh, implies that she was afraid that someone would be killed, which suggests, well, you know, stupid Indians, they don't understand theater. You know, anybody who's sophisticated can understand theater um, and know that these people are faking, you know, and they're not really going to hurt each other. Well, my background in thinking about the British side of things um, and those other early 18th century performances that I had mentioned where indigenous people were placed on stage um, so that the London audience could watch them watching the play um, led me to think, well, what if Williamsburg is pulling the same kind of maneuver just in the colonies? You know, they are the capital city of Virginia at that point. And so I really started to look at the diplomatic negotiations among the Cherokees, South Carolina um, and Virginia and it's, it, it struck me that the trope that the Cherokees were too stupid to understand theater was actually really useful 
during trade negotiations because theater is a material event. It's a real, you know, it's really happening in front of you, but you're not supposed to take it, it at face value or you're not supposed to understand its truth value to be fully present. Well, you know, you go back and you read your marks. What does he say? But there's no exchange value in a pearl, right? There's no exchange, you know, like the, it's physically present, but this financial value that's attached to it isn't part of the physical body in the same way that the actor and the role have this disjunction, right? Um, and so it struck me as a very useful racial trope um, for economic purposes um, and not just a kind of harmless story about um, indigenous people not being able to understand theater, but really um, a kind of fundamental um, pretext for the entire kind of um, commercial um, subjection of indigenous people to the Atlantic world system is like, well, they won't even be able to get it anyway. Um, and this was another kind of check on my own critical preoccupations because I went into that chapter certain that a performance of Othello in colonial Virginia has to be about, has to be a referendum on racial slavery, has to be about Africans. Um, and I'm not saying that someone couldn't possibly read it that way you know there i i tried my damnedest you know? <laughs> but, but um but this idea that othello's error you know you read that line that he is like the base indian who threw a pearl away like why can't this be you know he's referencing this exact sort of inability to uh, ascertain value um and it may be in a in a kind of glancing moment but it's there um and that wound up really opening up a, a, a whole new whole new avenue of, of thinking about this moment than I would have been able to get um, if I had looked only at Africans and literacy, which was my initial plan. As uh, as racialized as well. Mm hmm. Well, that's why he gets laughed at. I mean, we're back to these black actors sort of saying I have tried to. You know, I mean, we know these other things about Othello, right? You know, that he's of noble blood, that he's an aristocrat, right? You know, um, that that um, he actually in Act One seems to think fairly highly of himself, right? Um, but that's where the the dupe kind of thing comes in, right? And and no matter what we, if we want to freeze him in a particular kind of um, status, um, that has to do with his lineage or rank, um, that's because we have these scholarly systems that are like, in the early modern period, rank was more important than race. Right. So therefore, if Othello is of high rank, he must be a noble character who's meant to be admired. Um, and it's sort of like, well, we're not paying attention to the makeup and the, the, and the transferability of it. And, and we're also not paying attention to the fact that um, maybe uh, racial systems wouldn't have been able to survive if they were that inflexible. If rank automatically meant you were exempt, you know, so it seems more likely to me that, well, if I can't defeat you, then I'll acknowledge your rank. <laughs> and if I can defeat you, then you're just like the rest of them, you know. Um, and actually, Orinoco is really good for that, you know, because that's the whole subtitle, Orinoco or the royal slave, 
you know, so there is a way that those two can get conjoined. Your final chapter is on Melville's Benito Sereno, drawing our attention to the fact that Melville saw a blackface production of Othello and the themes of mutinous and mutiny in Melville's text. How did the event of the Haitian Revolution trouble the white interpretive community's confidence in its ability to read mm-hmm. black bodies and to mm-hmm. exclude itself, that is the white interpretive community, from being read? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a moment um, in Haitian lore, I don't know if it has ever been substantiated, but um, the amanuensis for uh, the Emperor Dessalines uh, said that the Declaration of Independence of Haiti would need to be written um, with the blood of a white man for ink, uh, his skull and inkwell and a bayonet for a pen, uh, and his skin as parchment. And that seemed to me um, to be the right place to end this project, because if I'm arguing that, you know, a fellow imprints Desdemona with um, black ink when he kisses her and that he bleeds um, ink uh, in that bloody period moment, um, then all of that is this suggestion that the bodies of white women uh, can be rendered into kind of literary material uh, as paper and the um, body and even the blood um, of Moors can, can be um, also part of kind of literary production. And that posits then, well, who's left to read them in this system? You know, I know there are all kinds of other people in the world, but, but in this system, um, white men are left to do the reading. They're the implied audience for this um, textual production. And so in Melville's Benito Sereno, uh, the climactic moment uh, at the end of this um slave revolt is that the um, mast is ripped away, mast, M-A-S-T, is ripped away, and um, there's an inscription on the um, masthead of this ship um, that has been written with the bones of a white slaveholder. And I thought, this has to be the end of the book. This has to be because it's the white male body used for literary production rather than the white female body or the body of the um, Black Moor. Um, and that really seemed to me um, to suggest that what Melville was doing in Benito Sereno was bringing the Othello story. You know, he's got all these little glancing references to Othello. You know, the ship looks like it's on the canals of Venice, even though it's in the Pacific Ocean. You know, why are we mentioning Venice, except that's where Othello is set? You know, the enslaved mastermind Babo does all this handkerchief business. You know, why a handkerchief? Well, because that's the key, you know. Um, prop in Othello, um, as well as um, ink and paper metaphors throughout uh, Benito Serena. So it's very clear that he is interested in Othello, um, but he seems to be interested in Othello when that white male audience that's assumed to have the power to read because their bodies aren't being used up to make text, when they suddenly have to confront, no, you too can be made a text. Um, and what's sort of fascinating is that each of the white men, when they're asked to look at this inscription that's written um, with the bones of this dead white man, they all turn their heads and look away. No one will look at it. Um, and that also seemed to me to be a great metaphor for uh, the scholarship on Benito Serino, um, because they don't think it's about that moment. They think it's what does Melville think the true character of Black people is? And I'm like, yeah, that's the 
that's the distraction. That's the, you know, that's the decoy. That's the thing you're used to reading. And that becomes the mistake. What he's interested in, um, as he is in Moby Dick, um, is how do you read whiteness when our print system has told us that whiteness is just a backdrop, has no meaning, you know, and that, that the black characters um, are the bearers of meaning. Um, and isn't that sort of paradoxical because um, that then gives the black characters a certain amount of power, black characters both on the page and also these African personages in this story, they're the ones that make all the noise, but it's the white characters who are trying to tell the, the you know, the American captain, help us, we're being captured by these black people, like help, help, help. And he can't hear them or understand them because he's been taught that whiteness doesn't signify anything. Um, and that seems to me to be um, the, I won't say Melville solves it, but that's the problem that he leaves the reader with at the end. It's not the problem of the immeasurable depths of the, of the Negro, you know, which is what the scholarship has said it's about. You know, it's no, like we've, we've screwed ourselves, white men. Like we, now we can't talk to each other because we've given all signifying capacity to um, these inky Africans. And now what do we do? I think something captured in your answer is the way um, Inkface has this uh, wonderful balance between like a larger narrative arc as a book, as well as these like deeply rendered chapters. And and it's something that, you know, I, I'm struggling with working on a book project. It's just balancing those just two mm -hmm. levels of, of writing. Um, how, how did you how did you accomplish that? I mean, do you have sort of. <laughs> suggestions or tips for for people working on projects well you know it's so funny because i'm probably going to contradict myself um but i believed in this project i did um and yes i felt lost a lot um and and you know um sometimes i felt it wasn't archival enough sometimes i felt well gosh this is too archival you get the point already that's six examples do i <laughs> you know like right. uh, Sometimes I thought it was too literary. It should be more theater history, you know, like it all. Um, but in the end, I believed in the project um, and I kind of always had. And the structure of the project, um, I always knew it would end with Melville. Um, and I always knew that I would hold to that no matter what. <laughs> and believe me, there were people, um, early modern and early American, who said, why? Why go up to there? I said, well, you know, because I'm challenging period here and I can't do that if I stay within the, you know, if I'm a good little boy and <laughs> stay within the bounds of period that I've been told um, matter. And like, what if there are other ways of marking period than, you know, mode of production, war, whatever else, you know, it, it might be. So, um, yeah, I mean, all the times that I lost faith in this project, John, what what restored it was looking at the scholarship that preceded me again and saying, well, what I'm trying to argue isn't there yet. And so there must be something here, because if there weren't, someone else would have said it, said it better, <laughs> you know, left no meat on the bone for me, you know, um, but I kept saying, no, there isn't anyone who's quite saying this yet, you know, um, which is not to discount that, you know, um, Ian Smith has talked about Hamlet's inky cloak and, 
you know, uh, Kim Hall has, you know, an excerpt about uh, in her chapter on the sonneteers about the metaphor of ink. So, you know, there were people who, so, but that was perfect, right? Because it was like these people I admire had seen something and now I was gonna really try to give it its due. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a lapsed Catholic and I've lost a lot of my faith, but, but in the end it was, it was, it was whatever kind of faith I still have. That, <laughs> that, um... And I, I want to return to something um, you sort of gestured at earlier with your answer on Afrobin. And mm -hmm. I think it's something that you raise um, towards the end of Inkface, which is that some of the discussion in pre-modern critical race studies has been around um, indicting or acquitting mm -hmm. various writers as individual racist or, or writing racist texts. Um, can, can you talk to us about the paths not taken or the ways in mm -hmm. which that sort of orientation um, has diverted from a more systemic analysis or mm -hmm. a more structural analysis? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's a tough question, John. Um, I think, I, I wouldn't say that the kind of scholarship that I was reared on, you know, Bartholomew, uh, uh, Hall, uh, you know, Hendricks and Parker um, was about indicting. Um, but I do think that, so it's not so much that I would blame the founders of the field for this tendency. Um, but I do think when it gets translated into the public realm, the question that gets posed to me is, well, was Shakespeare racist or not? Because then there's this great fear of like, well, then should we stop producing the work? You know, am I, you know, it's always a white person. Am I you know, um, personally racist if I enjoy the work? You know, um, you know, what is it that moment in Romeo and Juliet? You know, uh, he's shown like a jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Is that racist? You know, like, this kind of desire to know is every single line racist and you know and and was he personally racist um and i guess for me um the issue is that that really distracts from what i think is a larger issue um which is i i'm trying to think of the best way to put this i know how okay so um do, did you see american history x yes yeah i did okay yeah. Um, what bothered me about that movie was that um, Ed Norton's racist father, yeah. every line of his was, I'm racist. Like, he woke up, he's making them eggs in the morning, he goes, you know who I hate? Mexicans. And I'm like, can't a white racist make some eggs without saying an anti-Mexican slur? It's, you know, like, there's this sort of sense in which the racist must be filled you know, like Lady Macbeth from the head to the crown, you know, like must be filled with racism at every moment. And I thought, no, racists have, they make eggs. They, you know, they, they, in the case of that character, they beat their kids or they do, or, you know, or they, they love their, their dog or that, you know, they have other things they're thinking about. And so what's intriguing to me is that whether the individual person is racist or not, the structures of racial oppression, violence, and exploitation can continue. And so by keeping the focus on kind of a jury trial for each individual, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm like, this is a stall tactic. You know, we're literally gonna have to go through every individual white person, not only living now, but also in history, you know, and do, and do a full trial for each of them and, you know, establish whether their intention was racist or not. 
you know, which is actually the U.S. Supreme Court's quantum now. It can't be what's the impact of a law or a policy. Mm -hmm. It's was it, you know, composed with racist intent. <laughs> and that's a very high bar. So it just seems to me that that particular um, mm, approach is a stall tactic, first of all. Um, because I guess that's the really fun thing, John. Like, what if we had a world in which the individual could be racist and the object of racial violence still would not be harmed? Like, that could be created. Right? <laughs> you know, like, that could happen, you know? I mean, we had a whole Occupy Wall Street movement that, that people claim was about class hatred. I don't think any of the 99% killed anybody in the 1%, right? So even if, I mean, it's of course not true that, not, that, that, you know, Occupy Wall Street was about hatred, but even if it were, nobody got hurt. <laughs> you know? right. So, you know, is it possible for us to create that kind of structure? Well, okay, you know, I mean, that's that great line from a, from Coriolanus, you know, it, it's something like it is a poison that sh uh, shall remain where it is and poison no further or something like that, right? You know, what if we did that rather than, you know, give each, like I said, white person living and dead their own, you know, day in court to determine their intent and, you know. It's probably also some Protestant thing about, you know, God knows my heart, right? You know, like that. You know, it's like, well, I'm not God, so I don't have to know your heart, Shakespeare, Afrobin, Abigail. I don't have, no, I don't have to do that. Right. Um. And and uh, thank you for um for making that distinction. That is um th yeah, th that is not what Kim Hall and uh, yes. Patricia Park and Margot Hendricks were doing. Um. And maybe this is a good um good moment to to pivot towards talking about one of your your uh, public facing articles one of my um favorite pieces published um in a, a public facing venue in the sundial titled uh, kim hall and the mountain of evidence uh can you talk to us about that piece sure um i was so glad to write that for kim um because her impact is really immeasurable um and because it's not only, I mean, there had been books about race in early modern drama before. And, they're, and they are praiseworthy. From Eldred Jones's Othello's Countryman, you know, I've already mentioned Anthony Bartholomew, Jack D'Amico, uh, Anya Lumba's first book. Um, but Kim was the first to really put race in early modern, in interdisciplinary early modern studies. So she's got visual art. She's got sonnets, she's got travel narratives, and she's got drama. And it was the first to sort of say, race is pervasive. It's not, you can't just locate it in when a Moor comes on stage and now we have racism, right? <laughs> you know, like that's, it, it's just um, pervasive, as I said. Um, and the, the, the title of that, uh, Kim Hall and the Mountain of Evidence, uh, came when I realized uh, that the so-called trial of the century, the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, that verdict was the same year that Kim Hall's book came out. And um, the kind of official story uh, of why the jury acquitted O.J. Simpson, uh, coming from Marsha Clark, uh, the white prosecutor, um, is that Black juries won't convict a Black defendant. And that they ignored the scientific evidence of the DNA uh, to acquit him. Now, the fact that majority Black juries in Chicago and Washington, D.C. and all over the place convict Black people all the time, you know, sort of like, you know gets erased. Um, but the other thing that got erased was the 
mountain of evidence of police misconduct on the part of the LAPD in communities of color um, that exploded a few years later in the Rampart case in 1999. And at least 100 convictions had to be thrown out because, in fact, the LAPD was framing black and brown people in Los Angeles. Um, and whether O.J. Simpson did it or not, and I tend now to think that he did, um, it was not unreasonable for that jury, which was not all black, actually, to conclude what they concluded, but the evidence that they saw was entirely discounted. And I remembered this review of Things of Darkness uh, that says that Hall has virtually no evidence. And I thought, how is that possible? <laughs> you know, like the book is crammed. You know, I mean, some people forget that book after it starts with Midsummer Night's Dream, which is not typically understood as a race play, it goes to Milton and his theological writings. You know, like it, like she's not looking in the typical places at all. And she's finding, you know, um, these useful um, binary oppositions of light and dark and the kind of gendered and, and economic work that they do. And she's finding them everywhere. And she's being treated like, you know, the, the juror at the O.J. Simpson, you know, on the O.J. Simpson case, what you are seeing simply does not constitute evidence. Um, and it's, uh, it's really shocking. Um, but, and this actually goes to one of your next questions. That was when I first started thinking again about Pocahontas at Johnson's Vision of Delight in 1607. You know, when we say, what did early modern audiences see? And that's supposed to be our that's supposed to be the barricade that keeps out newfangled you know, trans studies and race studies and you know anything that's too newfangled is, is supposed to be kept out by uh, adopting the supposedly monolithic mentality of an early modern audience. And it's sort of like, well, they're not monolithic, first of all, but even if they were, Pocahontas is sitting right there and that makes a difference you know so so why aren't we trying to figure out what she thought she's also part of on on that night she's part of an early modern audience so if we're going to be good historical critics then we've also got to try to make sense of what she saw I read that you spent three years after getting your BA teaching high school and, and that you had taken an uh an undergraduate Shakespeare class your your senior year Yes. But then you, you were sort of called on to teach Shakespeare uh, at the high school level. Yes. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in what this experience outside of the hyper-professionalized mm -hmm. graduate school, you know, um, mm -hmm. faculty world, um, how that maybe has shifted your research interests. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my approach to teaching high school um, was very scholarly, actually. Um, so anything that I taught, I would read the scholarship on it. I didn't feel that I could go into the classroom. Um, and, and, and I should also say that the faculty that I was a part of at St. Louis University High School uh, set a very high standard as well. Um, I don't recall that they were encouraging me to read scholarship necessarily, but the, the, you know, but the, the standard of teaching was quite high. Um, and, you know, the, the pressure I put on myself was that it had, you know, whether it was teaching Toni Morrison's jazz or teaching Coriolanus, you know, or, or uh, teaching, um, I don't know, Samuel Beckett, whatever it was, um, I felt that I had to bring um, a, a level of, of rigor 
um, that for me was not terribly different from when I was an undergraduate. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, you don't write a term paper without reading some of the scholarship. Um, and I enjoy doing that uh, also. Um, but of course, the thing about high school is, you know, a 16 year old does not want to hear. And actually, I've tried to do it. They don't particularly want to hear about um, the deferred chain of meeting, uh, meaning along a chain of signification. Like that is not particularly interesting to them. Um, and I really did try it with this great Tony Cade Bambara story called Gorilla, My Love. Um, uh, and the, the, the fun of the title is that she goes to see this movie called Gorilla, My Love, and it's about Jesus. And she's like, how? Like, you know, she's like, those signs do not point to that, you know? Um, and so I thought that this story told in, you know, African-American vernacular English uh, actually had a, a wonderful connection to, to Derrida. And, and it just, it, it, it didn't quite fly. It didn't quite fly. Um, but I tried it. And so I felt, and not only did I try it, but I enjoyed the trying. And I think that that desire to be able to switch registers and to always be able to try to bring something as um, abstract as deconstruction to a high school student, even if it doesn't work, you know, is there a way to try to explain it? Um, to try to make it something that can actually fit in your life and you can maybe do something with it. Um, so that has sort of always stayed in me um, that maybe that's part of my audience too. And not only, um, you know, an academic audience. Now, I don't know. It's very possible that, you know, um, you know, I do some work in popular music studies and and some of my friends that are music journalists are like, you are such an academic and it's all over every sentence that you write, you know, that you don't write for the for the kind of popular um, press. Um, and it may be true and I may never be able to, <laughs> to go back. <laughs> you know, I may have already crossed the, the river on that one. Um, but I guess I kind of don't want to get too far from being able to have that conversation um, with, with high school students. And for that matter, with high school teachers, because that was a big part of my drive to become um, an English professor in the first place is I actually wanted to have an impact on how high school was taught. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually why I left high school teaching is I was sort of like, well, I'm not having, as, as much as I'm loving the interaction with the students, there are some aspects of the teaching at the high school level that I can't influence because I don't have the leverage or the credentials or the, or the whatever. Um, but maybe if I'm writing the scholarship that somebody's reading before they teach high school, then maybe that, you know, and I'll just add one other really quick thing. I think it would be wrong to think that scholarship doesn't um, affect high school teaching, especially when it comes to Shakespeare, you know, whether it's Harold Bloom's Shakespeare and the invention of the human, um, Leslie Fiedler's um, The Stranger in Shakespeare, um, and of course his uh, Come Back to the Raft Again, Huck Honey. Um, uh, these texts, even when they're not named, have profoundly shaped what people think is happening in Shakespeare. And so I wanted to be part of that in whatever way that I could. Um, and I guess I'll say one final thing, and I'm sorry about this, but when I was in high school myself, I read Toni Morrison's playing in the dark. And I read it because I was disappointed with 
um, the approach to um, what she calls the Africanist presence uh, in Huckleberry Finn, the Scarlet Letter, the Little Foxes, Eugene O'Neill's Emperor Jones. You know, we read all of these back to back to back. And what we got was a kind of standard liberal, the, the artist is always the critic of society. And so therefore Mark Twain mu must never be indulging in racism. He must only be critiquing it. And I was like, well, I mean, I see some places where he's critiquing it, but he sure seems to indulge in it sometimes. You know, <laughs> like, And why is that off the table as even a possibility of what might be happening? Um, and so I read Playing in the Dark and I didn't understand every word of it. There was a whole lot that I missed, but I, I was hungering for something that would open up another door, you know, open up another world to me and another kind of um, way of reading. Um, and so even if my book isn't pitched uh, to a high school reader, um, I'm sure there's some dissatisfied kid. I hope there is, and I hope they find the book. You know, because I think that even if you know some of the you know the the some of the context of academic you know interfield arguments you know may pass them by, something's maybe happening that will give them um, both courage and um, armament to stand up and say, well, actually, you know, I I don't think it's okay to say Othello is just a story about jealousy and race doesn't matter because I may not have understood all this book but it sure seems like there's a whole lot of paint smearing with black paint <laughs> so it so it must be about color in at least one way you know so um I'm always I'm very grateful uh for the time that I spent uh teaching high school I think um it has curtailed um, any tendency that I would have to go way off <laughs> and be completely incomprehensible. Um, and that, that just doesn't suit me. I like, um, I like the interaction. I like the exchange. I like that spark when someone goes, Ooh, I can use that. Good. Then I've done my job. Yeah. I, I identify with that, um, that, that detail that, that teaching sort of broke, maybe broke you away from some of these reified, uh, language that we use in the academy, and it seems like this was just um, a, a deep part of your character. This um, sort of willingness to ask like autonomous questions, Go, going back to high school, picking up, mm. playing in the dark <laughs> at that point, and and I kind of think like how do how do we promote this at all levels? You know, because I kind of think mm. students come into the undergraduate level, we mm. set sometimes the parameters of what kinds of questions they can ask. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then at the graduate level, we do that too. And mm -hmm. so, how can we kind of um, encourage that? That's a uh, good question. I mean, in my own classes, the the paper topics are, are always open, um, and I'm not claiming that's a perfect solution because there are students who really are begging me to like give me something to write on. You know, I am lost. <laughs> um, so. You know, maybe in the future I should have two alt. I should have alt. You know, alternatives. Here are three topics if you can't think of something, and you know, and then here's the free spin. But for me, it that kind of intellectual freedom. I mean, you called it autonomy. Um, it was so crucial. You know, I I think people actually respond badly. I really do. Um, to being told what to write. I mean, I did. You know, when there was an instructor that I sort of knew. 
just wanted me to say one thing, I'd say it, get my A minus and move on, you know, like it was just like, fine, here's the, 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 the pat little thing you want to hear. Um, but I just feel like writing is so hard. If you're going to have to take the time to do it, shouldn't you be writing what you care about? You know, and I think the part of the reason that I, that I haven't backed down off of this and said, I'll just give you a topic is I think that students can be afraid of their own voice because it's been punished before it's been suppressed before. Um, but I'll say this, um, I went to a Jesuit all boys high school and from our freshman year of high school, we were writing out of composition and rhetoric books from the college level. It was very painful. I had no idea what was, <laughs> but we were coming up with our own thesis statements, our own topics for, you know, for close reading, you know, it, and it really was your voice matters, your thesis matters, your opinion matters, your angle matters. Um, now it may be that adolescent boys are the last people who should be told that <laughs> maybe, maybe should be told your opinion actually doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Right. And I did kind of have to have that knocked out of me later and grad school is what did it like, sure, your opinion matters, but do you have any archival evidence to back it up? <laughs> it was like that, that was an important check on my, it's just my reading, you know, mm -hmm. but I, it, it pains me when my students at CUNY um most of whom are not the white men that I went to high school with have never been told your opinion matters you know your your view your now I'm going to demand that it comes up to a certain kind of level of rigor it doesn't matter just because it's your opinion but your opinion or or the thing that you or I won't forget opinion your obsession the thing that 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 you are obsessed with in this text is as legitimate a thing to be obsessed with as anyone else's thing that's what for so yeah Scratch opinion, <laughs> you know, but but your your question, your burning question, your inquiry is as, as important as anyone else's. Um, and I think it's it's the most joyful part of my job is when a student comes to me and they kind of go, wait, I can write about that. This little thing that I geek out on that nobody else cares about. And I'm like, yup. And even better, I don't know anything about it. So I'll be learning from you. Like, I'm happy that you don't care about the thing I care about. <laughs> Teach me something. <laughs> You know, and then they actually have the the motivation to do the hard research to make it rigorous enough to, you know, but if you if you take that away, where's the motivation? So, yeah. And it, it deprives the field and the conversation of so much, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, to me, the optimal goal is um, for when I whenever I'm working with a student on a long range research project even if it's something that I know something about, by the end of it, I want you to be teaching me. Learn more about it than I know. Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's where I want you to get, you know. Um, and I've seen it, you know, many times. And I, 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 there's nothing I love more than that. I, my God, I get bored with the stuff I know. <laughs> Tell me something else. <laughs> that, that, that's wonderful and, and inspiring. Um, now that this book is out in the world, uh, what are you turning your attention to? A, a book project, an article, a hobby? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I should be turning myself uh, back to uh, the piano, um, but um, soon, uh, maybe after this this summer and the the the, the research fellowship I have this summer. Um, but 
Um, the next projects are going to be the uh, in um, early modern trans studies. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be invited um, into that uh, community, which is tremendously welcoming and tremendously varied in its approach uh, and is especially awesome in that there's no kind of identity check at the door like you must be this trans to be in the field <laughs> like there isn't any of that it's just do you want to engage the scholarship and 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 further the project and it's it's really remarkable so um the two pieces that i'm working on now um one is about um the dreaded term transracial um and i'm trying to look at um white subjects in the 17th and 18th century who um, either refused to leave indigenous communities that they'd been adopted into um, or ran back after they'd been redeemed. Um, and I'm trying to imagine that as um, having the possibility of a kind of ethical rejection of settler colonialism um, and therefore challenging what's become our truism now, which is that if you're white and you somehow reject it, you're deluded or you're, or it's cultural appropriation. Like it can, it's only to be condemned um, as a kind of denial of biological reality. And so we'll just find your parents like they did with Rachel Dolezal and that will prove that you are white, you know? And what seems to be being foreclosed there, like I said, is, is there an ethical um, possibility for rejecting um, or, or fleeing um, whiteness? Um, and then second, are there processes of um, incorporation that communities of color have where, so that it's not just I declare that I'm really Korean inside, but it's actually, no, Koreans get to decide. <laughs> you know? And I don't mean all Koreans because you're never gonna get people to agree, right? But that whatever pocket of Korean culture, or in this case, you know, indigenous culture that I might feel uh, akin to, there may be some kind of way to match my ethical sense with their, you know, procedures for incorporation into a polity or a nation. So that's one. Um, and the other is looking at um, systems of social reproduction um, for enslaved Africans, specifically Igbo culture, um, because the way that the, the, that sort of Black approaches to, to gender, um, to ungendering uh, from Hortense Spillers have sort of proceeded is that gender belongs, the system of gender, the patriarchal system of gender uh, comes from the slaveholding society. And I think that analysis is outstanding. Um, but the question is, for me, what about systems of gender coming from African ethnicities? And how do we talk about the shift in gender produced by the demands of uh, production for a global market, you know, the, the demands that enslaved people produce for a global market? Um, how do we talk about the experienced gender shift, say, of a boy who's uh, forced to pound rice, which is a tr traditionally um, female activity in Senegambia, it's one thing to say, well, it's emasculating or it's something like that. Um, but is there any possibility that if we think about the gender system as 
from an African perspective, that that particular like the women do the rice pounding, the men do something else. Um, is there any possibility that there's some little femme boy who's like, thank God I get to pound rice with mom. I never wanted to have to do the quote unquote male work. Um, but we kind of can't see that if we're only looking at gender as emanating from the structures of white supremacy. So, I mean, in some ways, I would say that for me, at least for now, uh, you know, uh, until people respond to this book, I, I think I'm less interested in how race is reproduced by structures of white supremacy. I feel like for me, Inkface answered that question for me. And what both of these two new projects have in common is I'm interested in how black and indigenous communities decide upon um, racial belonging and reproducing cultural systems, um, even in the face of settler colonialism. Um, and so that's, that's exciting to me. Um, and I don't think either of these projects will have any Shakespeare in them at all. <laughs> They'll still be early modern, but they, you know, but 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 a bit more Pocahontas at the, you know, at the vision of delight, like a bit more trying to see it from the perspective of of other peoples with, you know, full and functioning cultures during that period. We'll keep our eyes out for both of those projects. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Miles. Thank you, John. This was really lovely.